Hello everyone and welcome back to another weekly installment of Inking Out Loud. I'm your host as usual, Rob Santos, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going everybody? And today we have a bit of a special episode coming at you for episode 55, this being our dive into book 10 of the Wheel of Time, Crossroads of Twilight. We finally brought together an episode that we've planned since the very beginning. It's my pleasure to announce the invasion of the McCaffreys has begun because joining us today is recurring guest, Pat the Sound Guy McCaffrey. Pat, what's up? How y'all doing? And making their first appearances on the show, we have Pat's sister, Anna McCaffrey Wheeler. Nice to meet everybody. And we also are bl uh, blessed with the presence of Pat's father, Mr. Gene McCaffrey. Gene, how's it going? Burn you, Rob. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for being on. We're going to have a full table on this episode if ever I've seen one. But for now, Drew, would you kindly blast us off on a recap of what we've read for this week? Okay. Nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> Damn, I wasn't no, expecting uh, that. That so was succinct. This, uh, this book uh, kicks off with uh, a little bit of a retread, kind of catching us up with what all the other Taviran and uh, main characters are doing while Rand and Nynaeve are cleansing the taint. And then uh, kind of moves on through the Siege of Tarvalon and results in Egwene getting captured. So, darn. That's, that is my actual recap of Crossroads <laughs> Twilight. <laughs> wow. That was like, what, 20 seconds? It's all we really needed for this book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> diving straight into our style points, usually that's where we begin for these Wheel of Time episodes, at least. Um, I do want to, first off, bring to the, our attention here that, once again, we've got no prologue. No, we have prologue. Right? The prologue's 120 pages yeah, or yeah. something like well, that. Well, can you really count that as a prologue? I don't know, man. Yeah, it's called prologue. Uh, I, I don't count it as yeah. well. And then we have, we, we, like, we have the same thing, though, for our epilogue, too. It's just like a short little hors d'oeuvre that we get. I don't know. Compared to like the prologues that we've been getting from book seven, book six, I mean, this one uh, kind of fell a little bit flat for me. How about you guys? The, as far as the prologue goes... Yeah, uh, specifically the prologue. I, I like this prologue. I liked the opening of him going yeah. into the house of the the other soldiers with Aitoralda, yeah, yeah, with the that was uh, that, that was, was a cool. well done it was, scene. It was it was, it was a, a lot good of tension. Yeah. It was a good introduction to Aitoralda, and like we have to remember that this conflict has been going on in uh, in uh, that area of the world for some time now, and it's had no light shown upon it. So we kind of get a recap there. Um, there were some, I mean, the whole thing could be like 50 pages long. <laughs> the whole book that. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. there are certainly bits that I enjoy in the prologue too. Yeah. I, I but, mean, ugh, I, doesn't I like, need to be that long. I like Aitoralda. I, I am a self-professed fan of Cian, uh, and she gets oh, a, a moment to kind of show off why she's a white, where she's figured out this pattern with the, uh, the replacement sitters being chosen in a strange manner, and, and she wants to figure out why. And I also like Sumitsu and, uh, you know, the Yellow, who was part of Cadswain's cohort in Kyrian, and she's the one who saves Dobrain in this uh, prologue after, and this is, this is <laughs> the big thing in the prologue, after the seals were stolen. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, the... Before a memory of light came out, of course, you, there's no way to even know that the seals were stolen in in this prologue, where uh, 
Deira Bashir is injured and Dobrain is nearly killed in the in the process of the the stealing and the swap with the fake seals. So, which okay, like the whole Dobrain thing was really interesting when I was reading it first, and then like the conclusion came so much later, and it didn't really have <laughs> such a important impact that it kind of fell flat for me. Hmm. It was a really intriguing beginning to this plot line, and it just went nowhere. I don't want to go over uh, ground that you guys have already covered, but what is the significance of the seals being found, being broken, being made of unbreakable... Uh, how do you pronounce it? Right. And then all of a sudden they can be broken. What is this all about? And what does, what does it really mean? I mean, they're symbolic. They have to be, because they're not actually imprisoning the Dark One. Mm. Um, what do we think about that? I have gone over that before? Well, so that's something that's, that's specified is that not even the one power, we've heard that again and again, not even the one power can break Quaindiar. But the Dark One's essence is not the one power. And I'm pretty sure that's involved, although I'm sure that Drew can give you a a far more in-depth explanation than I can. Yeah, so we, we do find out, um, skipping ahead a little bit in The Gathering Storm, uh, because the Domination Band is also made of Queen DR, and Rand breaks that using the true power. Right. Uh, but specifically with the seals, I always saw it um, as a, a, a thematic kind of touchstone that the seals weaken, physically weaken, as more chaos is sown in the world, and, and that was the thrust of the whole let the Lord of Chaos rule plan that the Dark One implemented, that the more, you know, the more upheaval <clears throat> and unrest and all of this and the madder Rand becomes and the darker, you know, depths he reaches, the weaker the seals get and the closer the Dark One can get to breaking out. So it's pure metaphor. That That's, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's pure metaphor because there still is like that moment in A Memory of Light when they are broken and the Dark One is like fully unleashed and so Rand, because they had to be broken for Rand to fully seal him back in again. Right. But, I don't know, it, it's something that's yeah. really, really tough to... The extent of their significance is, is hard to pin down. Because they're, they're called like focus points, where like it, they themselves yeah. aren't the seal, but they're like the focus points for the seal. So they're... They're like metaphorical and uh, like mechanical, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah, it might also be something to do with time, where yeah. an exercise in power doesn't break the seals, but the length of time that has to elapse in the pattern mm -hmm. for the Dark One to be released again and the whole cycle to start over means that the seals become weakened through that. Yeah. Okay, here's what Jordan should have done to really, like, <laughs> to, to clear up the All confusion, right. and it would, have added, it would have added symbolism that's really chilling and awesome. So get ready for this. So the seals are, you know, your yin-yang, right? With yeah. chaos and order being on one side. But the increase of order, or, or the increase of chaos, should color the seals differently. Like, the black dragon's fang should start putting out black tendrils on the rest of the white seal. Like it's slowly corrupting it over time, and that would uh, that'd be a great metaphor. It'd be a great visual be... image to have as well. Yes, I was gonna say I would love to see Danny actually, our artist, kind of sketch up one of those. That would be really cool and creepy. That would be good. We'll yeah. put a pin in that. Note yeah. for the TV show also. Yeah. Oh right. yeah, or my album cover. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's just, it's it's a mixture of a whole bunch of different factors coming together. It's the fact that we often get this repeated phrase again and again, not even the one power can destroy Quaindiar. Not even the one power, no matter how strong you are with the most powerful Saw Angriel you can find. Not even the one power. But they keep saying that, and they keep neglecting to mention, mostly because nobody really, in our uh, main lineup of characters, really knows about the true power in any detail yet. But I'm pretty sure the true power... It's, it's mixed with the fact that they've been around for so long, as Drew said, that they, they symbolize so much more in their connection with the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a, it's all these things coming together to make sure that the dragon has to face his mistakes in the end. Mm. Yeah. Think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Good answer. So, oh, thank you very much. Now, as far as uh, <laughs> the rest of my style points, I do want to start right here with a disclaimer that I have a lot I want to discuss for style because for a book like Crossroads of Twilight, it's kind of widely accepted as the slowest, if you want to call it that, novel in the series. It's only appropriate that we spend more time dissecting his style more than the actual <laughs> uh, events in the narrative. Um, and I've asked Drew before in earlier episodes about what we think on, for example, Jordan making certain large plot events happen off-screen. Like the most notable examples being the killing of Culloden in the Fires of Heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and now McMatt's escape from Ebu Dar sequence. We didn't actually get to see him in the moment as he left the city. He thinks about it afterwards and he, re he recollects on it in some detail. But I, I wanted to ask if any of you... Whereas disappointed as I was not to actually get to see them make the gate. Because the entire escape sequence at the end of Winter's Heart for me was really entertaining. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I wanted to see that. And I'm a little bummed that we didn't. So I distinctly remember reading this book for the first time when I was oh. younger. And being kind of baffled by Matt's early chapters in this book. I was expecting it to either pick up with him leaving Ebu Dar, and we, we see that scene, or else it would pick up with him down the road, you know, where they're running, but instead he's still hanging around and going back into Ebu Dar. And I was, I was really baffled by some of the decision-making there. I'm like, why, why are you so stuck up on it? And of course it's explained with the logistics of the uh, Val and Luca's traveling circus and everything where it's a little, little harder to get everybody up and moving than than just saying it but uh i i do remember being disappointed by the early matt chapters the first time i read this book now when i go back and reread it i have fun with it because it's you know these are some of our last robert jordan written matt chapters and uh as know. such are to be cherished yeah uh, but it's a weird stylistic decision in an already slow book to purposefully omit a section that would be so interesting. yeah that would be interesting and kind of spice right? it up a little bit thank you it has matt yeah. in his element he's yes. always at his oh, best yeah. when he's crafting these little plans to mm. and it, when, it's, or, and when he has to when wing he's it. in the heat of the moment and and has to make these split second decisions and uh you know alter his plans and improvise that that's when he's really at yes. his best he's very and clever one of the yeah, geniuses his, his nature as a tavir and throw these branches at him all the time it's mm. just oh it's just priceless one of the geniuses of Jordan's style of writing, Matt, is like there is the plotting, but he writes it in such a way that the plotting is very vague. We don't actually have a concrete idea of what the hell he's going to do until <laughs> yeah. he's doing it, which is great. And But that's a point where Brandon kind of falls off, because not only do we get all of his plans in advance, mm -hmm. but they're, they're so much more convoluted 
yeah. than they need to be, strictly yeah. speaking. Yeah. I mean, I'd argue that point against that point for the majority of a memory of life, though. We have no idea what Matt's up to. And that's Matt at Brandon's best. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. got you. I see the point you're making there. Okay. I, I was thinking Gathering Storm, Matt. Yeah, well, yeah. that's, yeah. A, and that's a conversation for, for our yeah. Gathering Storm episodes. Uh, Correct. But, um, but sticking with the style points for Crossroads of Twilight, I, I think, you know, Rob, you, you hit on a major point in this book where not only do we not see this escape, initial escape from Abu Dhar, but we also don't see the pivotal moments in Rand's uh, plotline in this book as much of a plotline as there is, where all of this stuff to set up the meeting with Tuan, in air quotes, uh, happens off screen. And we just get it in the epilogue, like, oh, by the way, this is going to happen now. And you're like, wait, what? Like, when was this? What? And because mm -hmm. we only have the one point of view from Rand right at the end of the book. And then there's one other chapter in the middle of it with, uh, from, what was it? Cadswain's point of view where they're, um, it has a little bit of Rand in it too, where he's lying mm -hmm. on the bed with me. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 What he's going to do with the Shanshan. And yeah. And Logan comes in, but, uh, but, um, but there's just so little of it. And the major points of it are not on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, it's not like nothing happens in the book, mm -hmm. timeline-wise, but we're like purposely kept from seeing it. And I don't, I don't understand the logic of it. So I have a theory on that, and that is we are reaching the kind of the nadir of the series, and a, such a major theme in the Wheel of Time is chaos. It is the lack of communication, mm -hmm. and it's it's people blindly bumbling about making their own plans independent of everybody else's plans because nobody talks to each other yeah and heaven prevent <laughs> and and this the structure of this book i think mirrors the actual kind of attitudes and methodologies of the characters in the series right now well, that's a constant theme throughout the book all kinds of characters are always making decisions without consulting anyone or dismissing anyone's, for a bunch of smart people, they're not very smart at considering <laughs> other people's point of view, yeah. or the fact that anyone actually might even have another point of view. <laughs> right. I um, said I. <laughs> yeah. But it's really true, it's really true of all characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it yes. creates all kinds of conflict, and it, it's a great thing for the writer yeah. to uh, to not have people talk to each other because it creates cross-purposes for 16 books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's also I using it to, to make a broader point about the society that that these people... There's and ours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's and ours, yeah. yes. Which is, of course, I mean, the beauty of speculative fiction. Right. We even, we even heard Rand uh, uh, address this once in A Memory of Light, I think it was, when he was talking about all the mistakes that they made in the Age of Legends and how they lived for so long in peace and everybody was so successful and everybody was so confident in themselves. It was a, it was a battlefield full of generals and everybody wanted to take charge and nobody was willing to delegate, nobody was willing to communicate. Um, and I think that's really plagued them, their society, you know, for thousands of years and we're still seeing a lot of examples of it. And man, if yes. there was a book to bring up this point in, it's this one. Because <laughs> the taint has just been cleansed, and you have we get to see myriad chapters of all of these random people with completely erroneous theories about what just happened. Yeah, and yeah. even the yeah. people who are directly told what just happened don't believe it. 
Yeah. Oh, no, 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 that's foolishness. That was one of my favorite parts of the early chapters with, with Matt and then with Perrin, where, uh, you know, they get the colors and they see Rand, yeah. you know. But everybody around them is freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, it's the Forsaken, it's the Dark One, what, what is going on? And, and both Matt and Perrin are like, it's Rand. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> and the achievement is so stupendous. I mean, it is to cleanse the taint is the greatest achievement in this whole age. Oh yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a stupendous accomplishment. In fact, I think the Sea Folk mark it as an as an end of an age, or at least the time the, of madness. The Amir, right? yeah, the yeah. the people on Tremont King. Yeah. Should we continue on with our style points? I still have three things I want to say regarding style. Yes. Or at least questions I have. Um, I want to briefly discuss our completely Sean Chan points of view. Because they really used to freight, uh, freight me, frustrate me as a younger, like, impatient reader. Um, I mean, I can appreciate them now in a, in a myriad of different ways that I didn't before. But, okay, so I was always a fan of Furia Kareed. I thought he was cool. I, was, I thought I was invested. But he was the only one in any of these chapters that I was even remotely invested in. Um, I mean, what I like about these chapters now is how Jordan managed to replace kind of any investment that we're lacking in, in these characters with this kind of looming danger for our other characters. We can see that the Seekers for Truth are, however, roundabout, picking up on the trail of what they don't yet know is a Taviran. And I, I just wanted to get everyone's opinion here, though. Like, these Sean Chan-only chapters, yay or nay? And if so, was it perhaps too much or even not enough? I thought it provided a very different point of view, one that we're not used to seeing. We usually see the perspective of people who are afraid of the Shan Shen or that have, are running and hiding, trying to lay low and avoid their notice. So it was different to see their perspective on how they viewed things, how they viewed this whole new world that they had left a long time ago and how they view it has changed in the meantime. For content. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it was necessary. It was necessary in in that we do need to understand more about them. And what I always wondered about the Shanchen was that how could they keep uh, the secret as long as it had been kept with the Sulam that the, that the Sulam could learn to channel. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that, that would be worth exploring in the in. In the uh, in the next age, but it might yeah. be better known on the Shanchan continent. They wouldn't really send the forerunners with anyone that was doubtful, or they felt maybe had divided loyalties, or so, was in on the secret. I I don't Juan think anybody knew. I don't think anybody even on the continent. Even on the continent, because Ooh. the the implications of that. Such a widespread conspiracy would be nearly impossible to keep under wraps, and the Sulam themselves didn't know. Yeah. And so, and and this is one of the things I was going to bring up. Uh, to Rob's point, I do think these are necessary. I agree with both of you. Um, and going back to Winter's Heart, through uh, Knife of Dreams, as we continue getting some Shanshan points of view there, it is really, really fascinating seeing the ripples from the knowledge, this new knowledge about Suldam uh, starting to spread out as as hard as they try to keep the secret, there are still people like figuring it out independently, like Egeanin, who discovers that she, you know, she puts the collar on Bethamin in Tanchico, not expecting it to really do any, do anything, and then of course it incapacitates her and 
and there's such a there's there's such a strength in Shanchan culture uh, on the like the conviction of their truths and yeah. then casting doubt upon those truths. It's it's so cool seeing <clears throat> how these different Shanshan characters react to that. Yeah, and and I also want to make sure we keep in mind that we remember um, that Moradin the Nablus Baalzaman has always wanted to increase chaos as much as possible, and we know that he was very heavily involved in the formation of Shanshan itself as an yes. empire. And I really wouldn't put it past <clears throat> pardon me, I wouldn't put it past the shadow to have agents there. Um, interested in keeping this a secret so that it could be revealed at precisely the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It is really the whole structure of their society in, in, mm -hmm. in important senses. Without, with that knowledge common, their society would not last as it is for oh, very long. And we have to remember that the Shadow has been planning this war for 3,000 years. Right. Yeah. Like, and yeah. And... They're also not great at the whole communication thing, but at the oh, highest yeah. levels, at least, there is solidarity between the Nablus and the Dark One. So there's at least some structural planning going on there, even yeah. if the, the ground-level people are all selfish, you know, power-hungry, uninterested in communicating with each other, lest they give somebody else a leg up, you know, yeah. but... But yeah, uh, moving, moving on with the style points, um, we haven't talked about the time overlap yet. Okay. And, and this is probably one of the two books where it's most noticeable. Of course, it's outright, like it's not even hidden here. Uh, the first half of the book, that bloody beacon is, <laughs> you know, in the background the entire time. Do you guys think that it worked structurally for Robert Jordan to do this, to have everybody catch up to Rand midway through this book? I, I do. I loved seeing what was going on from all the other points of view. Okay. And it wasn't, I don't think it was, wasn't needlessly confusing. Um, it's always fun to see Aes Sedai lose their <laughs> minds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I did enjoy, I thought it was really, really surreal and really cool to be able to read what you know, was happening around the world with everybody else's timeline as this huge amount of channeling was happening. But I, I, my, my problem is the fact that it, it, the, the manner in which Jordan approached this could have, I think he should have left it at the end, like past winter's heart when he was still, you know, approaching the closing of the cleansing of the source. I think he could have included it at the end. A lot of these, you know, reactions at the end of win of winter's heart, rather than trying to find a way to make them last an entire novel for Crossroads of Twilight. I agree with Rob They're on cool. this one. I think They're cool. we wouldn't have missed it at all if all of these points of view had come at the end of Winter's Heart instead. They didn't need their own book. Had he done maybe an epilogue? Yeah. Especially yeah. because yes. the, really the end of Winter's Heart seems very abrupt. Yep. It does. Not yeah. a lot of closure. Mm -hmm. He's just like, oh, I'm going to take my closure and make it the premise of half of the next book. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, I liked him. I found him cool. I just wasn't a fan of how Jordan spent so much time on them, you know, in, in this manner. Yeah, I think it's interesting how we're kind of split down the middle. And one thing I find very fascinating about this is that Robert Jordan himself 
said that if he had the chance to go back and change one thing about how he wrote The Wheel of Time, he would have changed the structure of Crossroads of Twilight. Oh, interesting. Uh, But personally, I fall more with uh, Pat and Gene, where I don't really have too much of a problem with it. Uh, I think it's fascinating, like Pat said, seeing the way people react to it. My only real issue is that it slows the pace to a crawl because so much of the... uh, so much of the character's interest is sidetracked because of this. It's a distraction. And where all the other characters were in their plot lines, we've, with the exception of Matt, and we've already gone over the decision to put his kind of climax off the screen, um, they're all in very transitive moments in their plot arcs, so there's not a whole lot going on with them anyway. And so it feels to a lot of readers like this is just a giant mire that we're stuck in. Where where they're all doing nothing and looking over there at the guy who is doing something but not being a part of it. You right. know? What could even have been cooler is if all of this took place before the cleansing. <laughs> so we're, we don't... We're, we were like, wondering what was that beacon. Exactly. Instead, yeah. But instead, we already mm. know the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That that would have been very interesting, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know about. if I've heard yeah. anybody bring up that idea before. Um, kind of, yeah. And, and want, then we actually get in the same book, though. We have to get sure, the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not right. suggesting <laughs> that level of a cliffhanger. So it would still be, by necessity, uh, uneven timelines. Yeah. You just want them to be reversed. Right. Yeah. That seems ideal to me. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to talk uh, really briefly about Shidar Haran. Oh, yes. And, Ugh, um, and greatest th- disappointment is... in the whole series. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is something I mentioned back in, I think it was in Crown of Swords. Um, but these brief scenes where we get to see him being a total creep show, and, and like, they're, just, they're really, really effective at instilling this sense of doom. And, and don't get me wrong, like I always, and still am, I'm fascinated by every single one of the Forsaken. But seeing Shidar Haran like crumble that spear to black ash between his fingers in book seven, I think that was book seven he did that. Um, showing up in this one and overpowering Masana in the White Tower, then marking Alviarin as safe from the Forsaken. Like these are the moments that made me as a young reader truly fear for Randall Thor. Um, these are moments where we, we get to see the real face of the shadow, and it's a very, very intimidating one. But imagine the look on your face. Young, tender Rob's face. If I traveled back in time and told you that all of this build-up with Shidar Haran would only leave, would only end with finding a husk at the end of a tunnel. And then that's that. Like, oh, oh, God. What a, what a... If you had told me that at that age... I'm sorry. I keep bringing up things that we need to save for later (laughs) books in the series, but just, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, but since we're talking cool about Shadow Haran, it's still it's still appropriate to say, "Oh God, I was so disappointed with where it went in the future." That's I don't fault you for that. Well, well, but you know, to your original point, Rob, that chapter, a mark, is probably my favorite chapter to read in this book. It's yeah, it's so just like there, there's such an atmosphere around that whole chapter. The descriptions yes. of you know Masana's, uh, you know her illusion over her. I've I've always been really fascinated by the whole like black and white shimmering, you know, disguise. And then Shadaharan just comes in and there's this, the sense of, you know, the the darkness that is light and 
all of these inversions, and then he just completely overpowers Masana and, and leaves a, a scared woman standing there instead of this cloaked and masked Forsaken. And uh, and then with the mark that Alviarin gets, I remember the first time I read this, leaving that chapter knowing that Alviarin was going to be elevated to the Chosen. And I, I'm wondering if any of you thought the same. I did not. I did, I did actually, because I figured that if they were going to bail fire several of the Forsaken out, they were going to need replacements. Mm-hmm. Which is why I always figured that Taim was going to be one of the new chosen. Mm-hmm. He wasn't Demandred, he wasn't any other first thing we'd already seen. He was going to be one of the new ones, and Alviarn was going to be one of the new female Forsaken ones See, as well. For myself, I never got that impression, because uh, for me, the Forsaken were more like a benchmark of sheer strength, and Alviarn doesn't really represent that to me. No matter how nasty she is, or how evil, how cunning, she just doesn't have... The, the fortitude and the one power to, to, to go toe-to-toe with even the weakest of the Forsaken by orders of magnitude. So she didn't really, I mean, she was a threat, but she didn't strike me as a possible candidate for chosenhood. So she, her <laughs> ambition does not seem to be overweening the way it is with the rest of the yes. Forsaken. I always thought that Tame was one of the Forsaken, and I'm, I'm rereading Lord of Chaos now, and there comes a point where Luz Theron in, in Rand's head says, I should have killed him long ago. And that, to me, was like a tipple, well, okay, so this is, you know, yeah. Yeah. this is it's not Tane's so... first time around on a, the wheel. So, I, I don't know if you heard about this. I was going to say, Drew, tell him, break but, it to him, man. Yeah, uh, so just a couple of years ago, one of the eminent figures in the Wheel of Time community had the opportunity to read through Robert Jordan's notes, and in his notes he originally planned Taim as Demandred, and then changed his mind somewhere between Crown, uh, uh, Crown of Swords and Path of Daggers. So yeah. when he wrote Lord of Chaos, he was Taiyu. You know, Demandred yeah. was Taiyu. Ah, and, okay. Yeah. And it's, it makes so much sense in retrospect, knowing right. that he originally wrote it that way. No. Because like well, you, you said, there were, those, there, were, there were so many tells in Lord of Chaos. You know, Taiyu shows up with the Ashamana Dumai's Wells and, and engineers this catastrophe in a lot of ways and then the the epilogue is demandred going to shale ghoul and saying have i not done well you know <laughs> i mean we, yeah but there's so many more hints too like but you were you're definitely on to him there gene you were definitely on to him jordan yeah. was writing <clears throat> taim as demandred and he later retconned that but back to alviarin i to your yeah. point rob when when you brought up like how you never saw her as strong enough i i never had that hang up because I'm, at this point, we know about the true power, and your strength in the one power doesn't really matter when the Dark One can just grant you access to the true power. And at this point, also, we know that the mark of like being a Chosen was being granted access to the true power back in the Age of Legends, and there were whatever, like, 29 people granted the right, and only 13 of them were present, and it was the strongest 13 of them who were at Sheol Ghul. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Your point, Dad, about um, Taim is an interesting tie-in to something I wanted to mention in this book. Mm. That's it. It's it's Rand's most irritating book by about a mile, and it's because <laughs> of how he thinks differently about Taim and Logan. Oh, now you have Taim on the one hand, who 
every time Rand is around him, this voice inside of his head starts <laughs> gibbering about how he needs to murder him and how he should have done it long ago. But what's Rand's reaction to that? Oh, I'm just going to put him in a in the highest position of trust and authority that I can think of. Not to mention how many times he's been explicitly told that yes. Naive has his own special students. Yes. <laughs> there are so many red flags, but Naive just never notices And then in this book you have Rand meeting Loghain for the first time. And Loghain, who by comparison is completely trustworthy, Rand treats him <laughs> like he's an asshole for nothing. I, yeah, for I agree. no reason. I yeah. bitterly resented that. It's yes. like, why, yeah, Rand? Why? Especially and when, after Min has repeatedly told him that yes. glory is to be his. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and how uh, Loghain is showing up and doing Rand a favor by yeah. going, hey, man. You gotta fix this. Yeah. Right. There's some stuff going down here that's not good. Rand's like, eh, I'll get, get there someday. How like, dare you tell me <laughs> that, that I have a massive problem? Yeah, communication yeah. problems. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> Preconceived agendas and the inability yeah. to uh, adapt. To adapt, mm-hmm. to react to new information. But we'll get to a going later. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. As someone who actually doesn't hate Egwene as much as I do, and I very much appreciate you being <laughs> the one who, who, who made that comment. Well, let me ask you guys this, speaking of the, uh, uh, the cleansing of the taint seemed to me to be a turning point for Nynaeve. I mean, she's not mm-hmm. rehabilitated, but in Lord of Chaos, she's still tugging her braid at Matt and just being as difficult and as a pain in the ass as she can possibly be. Yeah. And she yeah. winds up Amen. being, if not... Probably maybe the most heroic of of the women characters, and certainly an admirable character at the end. And the wisdom finally became wise. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's a good way to put it. You yeah, know, during during book five in particular, I had a lot to bitch about uh, regarding Nynaeve. Book six, yeah. I started to come around. Book nine, I was glowing about her in yeah. this most recent episode. Yeah. I had lots of positive to say about Nynaeve. I, I view it. I view the cleansing as her like the culmination. Of her, like it, it really begins when she gets reunited with Lan and married to him. Right. She yeah. starts the journey there and then ends it with the cleansing, and then she's right. she's fully realized. So I think her that's, potential. That's right. a great point, uh, and I'm sure Robert Jordan had this in his mind. Um, from what we know, the cleansing itself is what pushed Nynaeve to reach her full potential power. Like strength yes. in the one power, and oh, it pushed her that. to reach her potential as a character. Right, it's very fitting. Yeah. It's very fitting. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. That's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. it is good. So, and and yeah. I believe we've brought this up on the podcast before, but it is worth noting she is now outside of Elaine's radius of suck. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Every character yes. who enters yeah. into it. They, they, they get near Elaine, they start becoming tiresome and annoying, they leave Elaine, they get cool again. Except <laughs> Matt, Matt is immune. And, and Brigitte. And Brigitte. Brigitte is always cool. Well, actually, Brigitte is not even entirely immune. She's not, yeah. But. She has partial immunity. <laughs> yeah. like she yeah. has Some a people argue at this case. point that Elaine has reached such a concentrated mass of suck that <laughs> it's starting to warp space-time and all paths move forward into the There's, there's the singularity around Shale Ghoul and the singularity <laughs> around Elaine. <laughs> That's why Elaine couldn't have been one of the three that went in because the combination of those two sucked. It would have been over right there. 
I think she catches too much flack for it. I'm not. I don't hate Elaine myself. But no, well, why not? So she's, she's, I'm with you, Rob. I yeah. I cut her a little more slack so than you she, guys. Seem so she like Elaine. Me, but I, I just dislike characters when they get near her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind Elaine. It's all of the things that she does and says that I have a problem with. <laughs> oh man. I mean, she is we had a bunch of listeners just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, Rand has to see my... something in her after all. So my last style point I have is about the entirety of chapter 25, called Gathering Darkness. I just wrote, and I quote, Ugh. I don't care about Elenia and Neon and their bickering. I don't care if Elenia is grudgingly supporting Aramilla but needs her to die for whatever reason. Like, even the David Hanlon slash Doylan Millar point of view that would normally feel ominous at this point, it, it's just such a snooze fest for me. And it drags by proxy. Sorry, go another, ahead. Another reason to blame Elaine. Because <laughs> if it hadn't been for her actions, we wouldn't have had to endure this snooze fest because true, they're true, all true. satellite characters at to her, her, after all. The Elenias and the Hamlins. And yeah, and, and it's worth noting that Robert Jordan made it very plain in the prologue of this book that if Elaine would just ask Rand for help, Bale and Davron Bashir would have crushed the oh yes Aramilla's army in about a heartbeat. And <laughs> yes, Elaine and thus saved many Andoran lives. But <laughs> Elaine, in her high wisdom and holiness, doesn't have to be concerned with things like the yes. lives of the people that she has under, in her command. I'm not accepting the throne from the dragon. I'm taking it back. God damn it! It's like, oh, oh come yeah. on. There's enough of that. It's like there is a happy medium here, which is the problem that Elaine. Yes. Does not yeah. does not seem to be able to grasp. And also, she should probably realize that if they don't survive the last battle, yes. then there is going to be no long-term reign for her yeah, to yeah. have to deal with all the problems which might possibly <laughs> have happened if she allowed herself to take the throne from Rand. Yeah. So, priorities. Right. Yeah. Well said. She doesn't, Rand just has to crush her enemies. That's all he has to, and then she can take the throne. It's not him giving um, it to her. He just murdered everyone who stood between her and it. Yeah, simple. Elegant, um, even. So but no. now that we've spent about 40 minutes on style, um, should we dive into our characters? I don't think we're going to have a whole lot to talk about more than well, we we've normally We've already touched yeah. a lot on... Yeah, we have. Uh, I should say. Before we do that, I, I want to go back to what Pat was just saying about Rand Oh, go that. for it. And one of my favorite bits of Wheel of Time internet humor ever. It, it used <laughs> to be weird. on uh, blacktower.net. I don't know oh, if... Was this? if Sorry, I, I, th I don't think that site is functional anymore, but I'm sure you can find it if you Google it. It was a... A poorly written sort of short story called Rand a Man and His Master Plan. Yes! Oh, I just found this like six months ago when Drew sent it to me. And and it's basically Rand just going around and bail firing everybody who didn't agree with him until he has the whole world under his banner. And he goes to the land of madmen, and of course they're not madmen, they were just called madmen because they thought the Aes Sedai were dumb. And and they're like, Yeah, we we have this utopian society here. We've been building an army of channelers for you for thousands of years and Red's like sweet cool see you at the last battle <laughs> and it's like yeah, it's basically ultimately just the last battle is saying. resolved by Moradin and Rand yeah. playing a game yeah. of hungry hungry hippos <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's so great it's very good this, this whole yeah, random man with the master plan 
plot going on there. I just read that as like Rand thinking this in the shower. Just every little thing <laughs> in the right? every person. What he that dreams he could have said it to. Yeah, I guess it's probably no accident that my early reading was so heavily influenced by yeah. Rand the Man. <laughs> I'm ashamed that I didn't even find this out until like six months ago. Oh. I have never even heard of this. Oh, yeah, I that up. yeah, it was quite know, good. The the olden days of Wheel of Time online community for that one, uh, but but yeah, let's passed, let's move yeah. into uh, <laughs> our characters here. Um, we we were just talking about Elaine. Does anybody have like more about Elaine that we want to discuss? Uh, a few, including a question that I actually have. Um, okay. I have two impressions to get out of the way first. One, it was interesting to see Avienda finally sent. Okay, I'm talking about Avienda now, but this is because she's involved with Elaine here. Finally sensing this warning that the Roidia and Terangria left her with for this particular moment. Do not go to Rand. Yeah. I thought it was rewarding, you know, to see her uh, and Elaine, especially Elaine. You know, following their brains instead of their hearts. Mm -hmm. Right. That was that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and speaking of rewarding, it was awesome to see Elaine just rip apart Doyle and Millar for opening the gates during the siege. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think her logic is a bit flimsy, if I'm being honest. But seeing that slimy, trash words that I can't say, you know, that they, you know, getting what they don't know, he deserves. Chef's kiss. Yeah, and so I wonderful. think this is indicative of how Elaine has had to act around him for so long because she's using him as this smokescreen of like, oh, he's the father, not Rand, because she doesn't want her babies, you know, in trouble. And yeah. and it really wears on her having to, because she doesn't like the guy. She knows he's kind of a creep. She doesn't know the extent of things. But I think this was one of those moments where there was so much pent-up frustration at holding this charade that she just exploded you know right. yeah it was a reaction it had to come out eventually um my, my question about elaine though is i want to get everybody's input on this because this is something that's bothered me for a while i couldn't i've never been able to really piece it together it could just be a, a detail that i missed somewhere but why is it that elaine is fighting so hard to keep these wind finders in camelot like what service does she hope that they can offer like well how do they fix her situation like they don't really seem to fit the equation for me at least it, it might be just the Aes Sedai pension for wanting to control any channeling that doesn't occur outside the White Tower. Well, th this is something that gets explained. I mean, she, is she it? sees the, uh, the capacity for gateways and having uh, a group beholden to her. Uh, like, I, I almost want to be a jerk and say Rafo, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, because, well, yeah, they do provide service later, I guess. Yeah, because it's part of the, you know... The sea folk are all about these bargains, and mm. and Elaine wants to, and and eventually crafts a bargain with them, you know, and and we see this come to fruition in Knife of Dreams. Yeah, I just you know I guess they're just kind of a source of Sidar that's you know unchecked by the White Tower, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I she guess. can use them as yeah. a political tool, which she cannot. You know, she she can't control the Aes Sedai. She can't. She can right. barely even pull off being publicly Aes Sedai and a queen at the same time, much less use other Aes Sedai for her own political ends. Mm. So, yeah. Especially because she's not an Aes Sedai. And possibly thinking beyond the last battle to a trade-empire relationship with the... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Seafolk are such mm. a, a pivotal, uh, you know, 
economic force in the world that so much so much of the trade around the coasts and and Elaine hopes up and down the rivers will go through them because they have the best ships. And, you know, since we're talking about the Seafolk really quickly, I just want to say rest in peace, Nesta Dinrius Two Moons. Oh, yeah. It sounds like she and her Master of Blades went out with style. You know, they, they did. And others may escape. I mean, they're executed for refusing to bow to the Shanchan rule. I mean, Nesta Dinrius is, is a big reason that we have to respect the iron will of the Seafolk. So while we were still on the Seafolk there, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Rip. Yeah, yeah. Well, the implication is that after the last battle, the world's going to be a smaller place. The Shanchan have already crossed the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, the the Mir have access to it. So I think Elaine is positioning herself for. Uh, mm. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, it can be frustrating, you know, how how much of Elaine's, you know, mental capacity is dedicated toward what seemed like petty political maneuvers rather than the looming last battle. But it does make sense. I mean, this is a, a young woman who was raised to be a queen. She, her whole life, she's been indoctrinated to think a certain way. Right. So. Well, yeah. if, the, if the last battle is lost, it doesn't matter. If right. the last battle is won, she has to think about those things. She might as well start thinking now. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the contrast between her and Harin Din Togara two wins, like, and the petulant behavior that we <laughs> saw out of her in Winter's Heart previously, it was just, what a juxtaposition there. Now, at the risk of yeah. um, opening up a rabbit hole that we could fall down for a long time, <laughs> okay. the, uh, the sea folk really should have had a stronger reaction to the invention of, or rediscovery of gateways. In a, from a logical Why, point of merchants view, because in particular? they really do, like, like you said, Dad, they, the world is a smaller place now. Their whole purpose as traders who go from port to port has been entirely antiquated by the invention of something that, where you can move any amount of goods from point A to point B. That's true. They're yeah, thousands of miles apart. It would have, like, a real-world parallel, you know, makes me think they would, they would try and assassinate anyone who had knowledge of gateways and <laughs> try and bury the knowledge. Uh, but that's the point. That, I just have to think. That's not possible at this point, though. They yeah. can't kill everybody who right. has no, gateways. Yeah. Doesn't so mean the best they, they can do right. is to try and work with it, learn as much about it as they can, and hopefully co-opt it <clears> into their own shipping industry. Yeah, and the one, yeah. the one power is treated a lot like a, like a science. If, if if it's suppressed, someone else is just going to discover it down the road again, anyway, mm -hmm. regardless. So while while we're still on a lane, I just want to point out that we have now officially passed what many consider to be the absolute lowest point of the Wheel of Time. We got through her bath. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> she did too, which is the miracle. <laughs> yeah. Mystery. <laughs> Um, who are we moving on to next? Um, I, I want to talk about Matt and Tuon. We okay. just spent a bunch of time talking about uh, parts character. of the book we didn't like as much. This is my favorite part of Crossroads of Twilight. So, you know, even though we didn't get to see the, you know, the fireworks, so to speak, when on the night that Matt escaped Abu Dar, uh, I like the character development for Matt here and and I like getting to know Tuon a lot more where she becomes a more sympathetic character even though she still has some pretty severe problems going on uh the whole slavery thing 
chief among them. Mm. Uh, but, <laughs> but it is endearing reading about them. It, you know, seeing this courtship developing. I particularly love the Cluster of Rosebuds chapter where you know, mm -hmm. Matt has the, the silk roses and, and seeing kind of these tender moments between people who are, you know, human moments with two characters who are such major movers on a world scale, you know, being, being brought down, you know, to a, to a more normal level. I especially enjoyed the chapter where they're both sort of feeling each other out, trying to overcome their cultural differences. Uh -huh. And she asks him if he remembers what Arthur Hawkins' yes. face looked okay. like. And that always stuck with me because you have to wonder how much does she know and how could she know this? Yeah, and uh, you just stumbled across one of the questions I had written down for Drew later in the lore segment. I was going to ask, what the heck is up with that? What? Why does... How, why does Tuan ask him that in particular? And what knowledge does she have that I'm missing? Knife previously? of Dreams. Oh, yeah, yeah. Read Knife of Dreams. Yeah. Okay, it's, an, it's a Knife of Dreams? It's, okay. it's explained uh, in, I believe it's like the second or third to last chapter of Knife of Dreams called Under an Oak. Cool, okay. Yeah. Good enough. Like completely. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. But it's a great moment. It is. And it, yeah. it shuts him up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as uh, my points for Matt and Tuvon here, <clears throat> I did have them linked together as characters uh, to discuss for today. First off, I wanted to say, good on you, Matt, for making sure that, or making sure to ask Tuvon how old she is. You know, even in the face of inescapable destiny, he still wants to run that ID check. Good man. Good man. Um, on the subject, though, Matt himself has done a lot of growing in these past few volumes that I never really gave him credit for. You know, I, it, it might be due to the way that Sanderson approached writing him uh, shortly afterwards, <laughs> but little details are starting to make themselves evident to me around here. First off, um, the fact that Matt doesn't immediately run from Tuan when he learns her title and, and what she represents, you know, not only as, like, commitment, permanence, but in the fact that he begins to trust in at least loosely trust in destiny of some sort. And I think that shows remarkable character growth. Not that, not that I think everybody should simply bow down before destiny at all times, but contrasting this, like, this man with how he's acted before, I mean, he used to just run in any direction, no matter how dangerous, to avoid destiny. Oh, yeah. I, I think he's, yeah. he's learned to stop and consider and to listen to what the pattern is trying to tell him. So I did enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, comparing his actions at the end of Winter's Heart and in this book to, for instance, like the beginning of Shadow Rising, where he spends just like all of his waking time trying to figure out how to leave the Stone of yes. Tear right. and how to get away from everything. And then, you know, he goes to the Aelfin and they're like, you must go to Roydian. And he's like, why? Like, why do I have to, you know, he doesn't want to do what he has been told he has to do. And this is him accepting that, that role, finally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, that scene in chapter 28 that you brought up previously, Drew, uh, a cluster of rosebuds, I thought, it, I wrote down it was almost endearing. And I might be willing to take back some of the spiciness that I added to my comments on their relationship previously. One of the Maybe. more interesting aspects of that to me is that if Matt didn't know that he was supposed to marry her, he never would in the first place have. Like he had never been to the Aelfin. Right. Uh, none of this would have happened. Yeah. So it's only happening because he knows it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. 
Which is a which is something that Robert Jordan plays with a lot. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. Literally. There's so many avenues <laughs> of foresight in this series. Right. You know, whether it's Min's viewings or the Aelfin or dreams or foretellings, whatever, we see people acting on this future knowledge all the time. Yeah. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. And sometimes it becomes a futile thing, especially around Min, mm. where we see her struggling with her ability, like, and she talks about when she was younger and warning people saying, don't do this, don't do this, and it, she just makes it happen anyway. Yeah. Right. And it happened because she said yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, and then she learns better. So... Um, something really creepy that happened during Matt's point of view. I learned how these uh, ghosts work, and they really creep me out now, like way more than they ever did before. Like that moment where Matt is dodging all the traffic and he's getting frustrated because everyone's like nearly bumping into him, they're not even looking at him. And then the comment that he gets from like Tuon or Solution, and he realizes like the road's actually empty. Yeah. Like that literally raised the hair on the back of my neck. <laughs> like I. I thought everyone previously was just seeing the same illusions. Like, the fact that Matt saw them in this scene, and only Matt saw them, means, like, they aren't static across perspective, these ghosts, and that is just downright nightmare fuel to me, personally. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. But that physical reaction I got, the hair on the back of my neck, this is something I've been hammering for over a year now on the podcast, and I'll continue to do so. That physical reaction in a reader is the hallmark of a master storyteller. Yeah, true enough. Yeah. Like, chills down the spine. I'll drink to that. Music. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah, and, and, and it's worth noting, like, these ghosts are, I mean, they're not even consistent, and that makes them even more unsettling, because we do see certain instances of them where there's, like, a mass sighting, so to speak. Mm. But then we also have these instances, like Matt in the street, and with the maid, you know, the Andorran maid in the manor, being like, oh, I saw... Oh, and, yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. Oh, no, no, you didn't. You're like... Yeah, there there are these isolated instances as well as you know ridiculous mass yeah experiences like like seeing women freak out that oh my god I just saw a ghost and then suddenly a few sentences later we learn that all this all the food is just now spoiled oh yeah yeah it's like these these the the, the way that they're linked too in the same scene is just it's chilling. So, I'm afraid that we've arrived at the point in the podcast where we have to talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, or, or should I say the wolf in the room? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, just one more thing with Matt before, before we get on to that. I just wanted to point out one more thing with Matt. Okay. We finally see him get, give the order to kill a woman. Yes. The Soldam. Uh, Rena? I think, I think it was yep. Rena? 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 Yep. Uh, in order to protect Tuan's identity. Tough, but uh, the right call, I guess. And I just wanted to say sorry, Matt. I am sorry. That sucks. Now, sorry, now. The wolf in the room. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, Kick it off, Pat. <laughs> Perrin cuts a guy's hand off because he's very sad. The end. Yeah. Well, yeah, well it's because of his sadness. I think this is one of the things I, I was going to bring up with the characters, is that I think it's very deliberate setting of Perrin with Aram and Nasima because... In this book, they're all obsessive characters. They have mm. one fixed idea, and they're willing to do anything to get that thing done. And so there's a lot of similarity. Not that mm -hmm. either one of those three would ever <laughs> see that or admit to it. Still oh, goodness. Less. 
Right. But yeah, Perum is much more close to Masima than he thinks he is, and I think cutting off the hand yeah. was a stepping point for him in that direction. Yeah. Perum could have been a white cloak. Yeah. I I think the the characters that Robert Jordan constructed around Perrin were very purposely built in this way, where there are reflections of Perrin in all of them. Aram is drawn to Perrin back in the Shadow Rising because he sees aspects of himself in Perrin. Mm-hmm. And uh, while there isn't as much of like a direct like character magnetism, Robert Jordan built Masima and the White Cloaks as major parts of Perrin's character arc because their values are inversions or reflections of Perrin's personality. And Perrin has to overcome those parts of, you know, th- those hangups that he has and take his character traits and rein them in so that they can be virtues rather than vices. Right. They're extensions of, 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 of ad absurdum. Of, of, yes. Yeah, I agree with that. That's that's a, that's a good point. I'd never I'd never conceived of it like specific that. Specific to Perrin. Yeah. In yeah. that he was the one who has <clears throat> the episodes with the white cloak. He's mm. the one that's dealing with Masima. Mm-hmm. And that's it, it has to be intentional on Jordan's part, at least artistry. Yeah, it's it's one of these subtle things that you know, people dig into Robert Jordan's writing and usually they focus on, oh, he's so descriptive. And that is the most immediately obvious part of his style. So maybe this is going back to style points, but it's he, he does so much more with character than people realize. Right. You know? And we'll add in Galad, which is yes, yes to come. Yeah. Because they're, they have more than passing similarities to each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, Galad, in, in a way, is also an extreme version of Perrin. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're good people. I, see that. I mean, Perrin's a good person. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we knock him because he's just a little too goody-goody, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and mostly for his bad, his bad yeah. taste in women. <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah. You well, know, I don't know. I mean, this is something I talked about a lot, in, especially Shadow Rising Part 1. Um, most men would be happy to have fail. I am not most men, then. Okay. So, I, I want to bring this up. I have historically been a critic of Fail, like a pretty vocal critic of her, but this read-through, I, I am respecting her choices uh, a lot more, especially in this segment. Fayil's Could it be chapters, because that she's not around? Because she's not around to just make Perrin's life a living hell at the moment. <laughs> yeah, the the only thing that remains—well, maybe not the only thing—but the main thing that remains an issue for me is how she just doesn't communicate with Perrin effectively. She the, and and Fair that's enough. not a healthy way to approach a relationship. But hmm. independent of her relationship with Perrin in these chapters with the Shido, I'm finding myself very engaged. I think she's competent. She's making mostly smart decisions. She's going about solving a nearly impossible problem in a in a pretty pretty smart way. Yeah, we get to see how competent she is, how Fayil is, um, without Perrin to kind of complicate things mm. for her. Um, but 
I mean, she's a lot more sympathetic of a character now. She's, she has a lot more room to grow as a character with her captivity in the Shido mm -hmm. and the fact that she's trying to keep morale in her group high. Um, I do lose a little more patience with this particular storyline when Jordan decides to stop and focus more on Galena and Savannah. And I, I just, I, I, I despise both of those characters so much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting their struggle from Fayil's point of view, I think, has been pretty rewarding. And I am definitely a lot more on the Fayil train right now than I was, like, say, you know, six books previously. Okay. I, I guess I could sum up my issue with the whole thing by saying that phosphorus and oxygen might be fine as phosphorus and oxygen. <laughs> okay. However, when you put them together, the result might not be exactly what Actually, everyone wants. Actually, Theron and Fael would make a good couple if they learned to communicate. Better. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and oxygen and phosphorus might be a better <laughs> couple if they learned to communicate yeah. better. But I mean, yeah. we, um, if, their, uh, if their inevitable reaction to each other wasn't what it is, oh, is I that... Say, they, they'll be fine. Probably. They're committed to each yeah. other. They'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they just so, need to get there, is all. Right. And Here's a bit of a sensitive... Yeah, Sorry, go process, ahead. You finish there? The process burns. Yeah. And, and it is, of course, complicated by Perrin's super sensory abilities, mm. where right. I think that throws Fael off. Mm. Uh, obviously, she does have these Saldean tendencies, and they have their own weird communication style yeah. but I think it's exacerbated because she is maybe not uncomfortable but uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, she's not even unsettled she's just put off kilter a little bit by Perrin's ability to read her mm. and so she can't she can't communicate the way she's used to or has been raised to communicate in this situation because so much of it is based on subtext and Perrin is a very literal person. Like to mention deception. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and Perrin has, he's not only a literal person, but he has the ability to parse your truest feelings and emotions, you know, and, can I just say, though, that I'm glad that Jordan backed off a little bit on that in this book. As I was noticing in earlier books, it was getting a little much. It felt a little Counselor Troy for a while there, where, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Captain, I'm sensing anger. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I think, something we talked about a little bit in uh, Lord of Chaos and A Crown of Swords. Those scenes in the Sun Palace with mm -hmm. Perrin and Fael and Berylaine yeah. were nearly unbearable because they were so much driven by Perrin smelling jealousy and smelling... Yeah, it, like, was, it was getting way too much, but he's backed yeah. off it a yeah. lot in this book. And as a tool, it falls flat sometimes because he can, he, he's got it perfect when, when the emotions are something relatively uh, unimportant like jealousy from sure. Berylaine or Fael. And then when it's massively important, like, there's something about Massima that I just can't <laughs> put my finger on, but well, it, it hurts. And, and, and like, oh, I'll just forget about it. Well, no, he, he, he writes it off by being like, he just smelled madness yeah. off of Massima. Yeah. That, that he's so far gone, he's mm. so insane mm -hmm. at this point, rabid almost, that he doesn't have normal human emotions. So, and a, and a, yeah, again, and a good thing. 
that he backs right. off of it, yeah. especially when in proximity to someone like Masima. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, Jordan Jordan used that particular tool to, to explore some really neat areas, though. Like, for example, and this is something I brought up in Crown of Swords Part 1, I'm pretty sure. Um, presenting these scenes from Perrin's point of view, especially when he's in Rand's presence and he's smelling the emotions on Rand, and he's unnerved by how Rand goes from smelling calm to smelling furious to smelling contempt to smelling uh like 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 amusement and stuff so quickly and of course you're thinking okay kind of like along the lines of misima rand's just rand's madness nobody's uh scent changes that quickly but it wasn't until very recently in this last reread that i stopped to consider that perrin might literally be smelling both rand and lose theron's emotions at the same time yeah that that kind of creeped me out a little bit i thought that was cool yeah i no, i i couldn't agree more um, is there anything but, uh, else we want to talk about Perrin and Fael with? Yeah, as far as far as Perrin goes, I do want to ask a sensitive question, perhaps just breach a sensitive topic. Um, but I wanted to ask everybody's opinion on Roland. Oh, I don't like him. On uh-huh. who? Roland. He's the he's the Shido who the Shido has who taken kind of like, Fael you know, guy shine. Wants Fael and tries to protect her in his creepy way, but. I, I am not a fan of Roland. I am perpetually baffled by some sections of the Wheel of Time fandom's love for this guy. He he comes off as so creepy. Uh, it he's so like he he uh, belongs. He just to, he's yeah. creepy. It's like awkward. Like he doesn't know how to talk to a woman. Uh, I wouldn't know no because he's he's very flirty and I think he's actually I think he's actually fairly good at it. He belongs to this category of Aiel for whom there can be no excuse. You know, you have your one, your one group who, went at, who followed Rand, who were able to um, accept he who comes with the dawn. And then you have the Shido, who for their own reasons were antagonistic toward him. And then you got this third group of, of people who joined the Shido because they couldn't handle the fact that Rand was a wetlander. And then he was he who comes with the dawn. So I, I view him as a coward. Well... Wasn't that the, the whole start? reason? Wasn't it because that they saw they couldn't face their own history? Well, so that's a separate group entirely. There are those who just gave up the spear and left. Oh yeah, and they became right. Shine like yeah. You know, yeah, they're definitely they're and, and we see one of them. It, I I didn't bring this up in the Winter's Heart episode, but yeah, it, it remains be. one of the most surreal moments in the series when Rand is in like the the plaza in Far Matting. And he runs into an Aielman who's carrying like a like a basket of stuff. And and I I remember the first time I read it, the description of the guy, because he's he's like broad-shouldered blonde and has a scar on his face. And I was like, is that Samael? What? And then I was like, well, no, 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 no. Really? He's too tall, he's an Aielman. Okay. But but he was one of these guys who couldn't handle the truth, and so he just fled. And then there are the brotherless who went to the Shido to fight against Rand, where they were they they had their own sort of denial. It's I mean to make yourself such a victim of cultural determinism. I mean from something that happened thousands of years ago, right? That they followed the way of the leaf, and it's it's so opposite. I mean, I would have a lot of trouble. Giving up my life because somebody told me that my Irish ancestors, you know, yeah, used to be Satanists. 
you know, so what? Yeah, (laughs) and this is something, without going into spoilers, that I have um, a problem with, a a provisional problem with in the Stormlight Archive, that there's a a certain revelation in in the Stormlight Archive that has the same sort of implications, where it's something, something people did thousands of years ago, and everybody in the current time is freaking out about it. It's like... Mm -hmm. What? Why sorry, would I you? Think that that may not be the whole story, but yeah, and, and I agree with that. Other... But <laughs> yeah, I figured that in the way of kings. I was like, oh yeah. Okay. But I I agree. You know, it, it's something that we make our own choices. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But no, I don't understand um, his position um, where he's he's so obviously interested in Fael, but it's so completely forbidden by all these traditions, which he's supposed to. <laughs> Uh, think of as a, a priority in his life. You know, you can't yeah. seduce a gaishen that's completely... Yeah, or even go farther than forbidden. seduce. So, yeah. so this, is, this is one of the things that I see a lot of people defend, for instance, Tylen, uh, you know, in the forums online and stuff, and defend mm-hmm. Roland, where they're like, oh, like there are cultural reasons for why he acts that way. And I am not prepared to excuse people's actions because of cultural norms. Like, it's it's a cultural norm for the Shanchan to be down with slavery. That right. doesn't make it okay for them to be down with slavery. Like, just because Roland is an Aielman and has a certain attitude toward sexuality doesn't mean that it's okay for him to not only... Uh, prey sexually upon a, a woman who's essentially a slave but also married like just imagine the kind of person that roland would have would have been if he was written by a different author like I, say terry Goodkind. yeah <clears throat> and i i don't think there is a cultural norm among the aiel in any case that would allow for roland to do any of any of the well, above well, there's a cultural norm among the shido now where they're they're mm. casting aside everything and, and it's it's moral anarchy basically. <laughs> right. You know. But I mean even that's not a cultural norm. It's just anarchy, like you said. Like yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. hasn't had the time to become established. That's that's fair. And there's a lot of I think if I remember correctly, there's a lot of other Aiel who have a problem with how Roland's Yes doing things. Mm-hmm. And that to me was like the nail in his coffin. Like, okay, if even your fellow honorless dog Shido <laughs> are, are like, ooh, that's a little like, are, it's you, a little icky. Then you're you're raising eyebrows in the court of Caligula. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Oh. Yeah, no. To, to wrap up Perrin, though, I have two more things I want to say about Perrin in particular. <clears throat> it's tough to see what Fayil's capture is doing to him, not only in in mind and body, but in spirit. Um, we, we, we talked about this very briefly, we mentioned it already, but reading him chopping off that Aiel man's hand, and thereby officially involving himself in torture for answers, like, this is why I so sometimes wholeheartedly despise Parrot. Like, without Fael around, he is truly an animal. And I don't mean that in anything resembling a compliment. So, I think this is, um, a great bit of writing on and and not just writing but planning on Robert Jordan's part where he set up this scene 10 books ago with Elias yeah. in the steading mm-hmm. telling him right you will use that axe yeah only and when that's... you start to like it 
you know, then, is when you know yeah. you need to get rid of it. And this yeah. and is that's my next point moment. is the fact that it's a big moment for him. We finally see him do this. He and, threw the axe away. And, but we and learn why he's been afraid of himself all yeah. this time. Yeah. He's had good reason mm. to be afraid of himself. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I want to make a point just a, a related but tangential to the cover art. So I love the original Daryl Sweet cover art of Crossroads of Twilight. It's mm. probably my favorite cover that he did for the Wheel of Time. But I thought it was a wonderful decision when they redid the cover art for the ebooks and for the trade paperbacks to depict the scene of Perrin walking away from his axe. Yes. Um, it, 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 Perrin has the most dramatic moment like this, but Rand, Matt, and Perrin all have to deal with a similar um, aspect of themselves that they've never known in the Two Rivers, that being that they are dangerous people. Mm -hmm. And that their actions lead to to death and destruction and they have to come to grips with that all in different ways like it, it drives Rand mad in a way yeah. because I mean his, the magnitude of what Rand does is is just bigger yeah. um, with Perrin it's more personal and Matt uh, well he, Matt... he sort of inherits it in a way from the memories yeah Matt has to come to grips with his ability as a military planner mm. his ability to enable other people to yes. <clears throat> to kill you know to to do this and when he you know we, we see this moment play out in crossroads of twilight with rena where he he can see the big picture mm. mm -hmm. and he has to make these decisions right. and he has to reconcile that with himself and with his you know the the values he grew up with. Mm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I guess Perrin has the most definite moment. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the most profound too. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure about that, but I, I agree. Uh, I think I'd say so. I think there's there's a good argument for that. I yeah. I don't know if I would fully agree because they're. You know, we'll get to this with Rand in the Gathering Storm. But, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but they're they're both any way you cut it, they're both very powerful moments for mm -hmm. these characters, yeah. and and they're things that clearly Robert Jordan planned a long time in advance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very true. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> so we still have I still have points on Rand and Egwene to get out of the way. Not much for either though. Do we have anything else about Perrin before we want to move on? No, I think that's, that's a good. good. Yeah. Okay, who are we starting with, Rand or Egwene? Let's let's get Egwene out of the way. Cool. I've only got two small points for Egwene, honestly. Um, I want to say that Egwene represented for me nearly all of the narrative progress that we get in this book, because after so much time waiting, like from books six through ten, um, she has finally bought bought brought her army to the doorstep of Tarvalin, and she has officially begun the siege. Finally. Yeah, about time. Yeah. Um, and an often overlooked moment for the White Tower, too. In Chapter 19, Moria suggests that, um, you know, they could perhaps maybe expand their circles a little larger by possibly considering maybe linking with men. Wow. <gasps> um, bombshell, bombshell to drop on those eyes to die. I, I mean, it needed to be done eventually, and regardless of the reaction it got, that is a huge moment for the White Tower and the entire paradigm upon which they stand. And I thought it deserves recognition. Yeah, 
if I had a blouse yeah, to smooth or a braid to tug, then you best believe. <laughs> yeah. So that's everything I have to talk about Egwene wise. I forgot about like so I have always had this impression that I liked Moria, and I couldn't really remember why until I reread this book, and I was like, oh yeah, she's that one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it also subtly puts us in mind of the minds of Moria, which associates with other <laughs> oh, things. Oh my god. So there's that. Uh, Subtle, but I want but you yeah, to add what like a, a, like what a, a great rim scene shot that there. was with her standing up and shocking the hell out of the entire hall, and they're in such an uproar yeah. that Egwene has to use a magnified voice to tell everyone sit down and shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That was that was a really good scene. It it might, it's probably in my top three Egwene scenes of all time, actually. Hmm. This is a good. One. Wow. Yeah. I I mean I really enjoyed it. Um, mostly because it had nothing to do with her, and she was just <laughs> a witness. Well, no, but she's also, you know, going through and figuring out, well, how do I feel about this? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she doesn't That's come like... down as hard on it no, as she could have. No, at the have, end, which... basically, she's, she thinks, um, you know what? It's It's got to happen. Mm. We need the help. She is adaptable. That off. That's her best characteristic. She's adaptable with the right information and motivation. Yeah. Her, her and her biggest flaw is that she doesn't see it when it's pretty plain. Mm-hmm. She does have preconceptions that need time to be smoothed yeah. over. She she has a, a real problem with communicating, like every other character in the world. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> well, it doesn't help that she's got about a dozen different secrets, and she has to keep track of which secret should I keep from these people and which secret should I keep from these other people and doing that over time will tend to confuse things yeah yeah yeah, yeah. one of my no that's a tangent okay well, yeah. that out. <laughs> uh, so what was your other point Rob uh, no that was it yeah so I I have one point on Agween and and this is concerning the end and her decision uh, to insert herself in the plan to turn the chains to Queen DR. Which, by the way, I loved the development in this book that she rediscovered the weave to create Queen DR. Uh, mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. scene when she goes into the, the tent and they're all working on it and like getting the different uh, you know abilities and speeds of all of them and, and then just seeing her like flash, you know. Uh, I in in one way, I thought she was very smart to insert herself in this plan. Despite the fact that she is the Amerlin and she's an important figure, you know, they're they're at war and she is the most effective warrior in this particular situation. Mm. However, in typical Egwene fashion, she is wildly overconfident about it and thus doesn't think things through and gets herself captured because of that. Do you think that they meant to capture her, though? Because I thought the comment that they made when they captured her, that, oh, we got better than we bargained for. Yeah, they did not mean to capture her. They did not expect to capture her. They just meant to capture whoever was sent. Right. Because they also capture Leanna at South Harbor. Uh, But had Egwene prepared the same way Leanna did, she wouldn't have been captured at all. The uh, Leanna, you know, uh, inverted her weaves and, and... and prepared for it, and they only caught her when the chain was halfway done. It took them time to figure out what was going on because of that. 
Egwene turned the chain in an instant, she she could have done that and gotten out had she inverted her weaves. They never would have caught her. But because she's Egwene, of course, <laughs> why would she need to invert her weaves? She's invincible. I'm so. <laughs> She's the Omerlin Sea. Oh, I wish Nick Wynott were here to see oh, that. Oh, <laughs> yes. That, that moment will live yeah, in infamy. In, in infamy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but that was, that's just what I wanted to say about Egwene. This, this decision here is emblematic of what is good and bad about her character. It highlights her decisiveness and her willingness to put herself in danger to achieve a goal, a good goal, and it highlights her pride, essentially. Mm -hmm. She also does it because she thinks it isn't really fair to put this pressure mm -hmm. on think, someone you know, like Bodhi, who's yeah. you know, maybe that not sounded like justification right to me a little bit. Right. Now, I, I can't fault her decision for going. I do fault her decision to... Ignore safety precautions. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but I, so I, that's Rand? all I have on Eggwing. Yep. So what do you got on Rand, Rob? Um. Okay. So my biggest gripe with this book—that's what I have about Rand here. Um, in my points about him, you know, what really stained my opinion of this book originally going into it as a young man, as a teenager, particularly. Um, as a first-time reader, it's not so much in line with what I hear from a lot of others. I hear a lot of people saying they dislike this book because of how much it stalled the narrative overall, and how we really only got a few scenes, neat scenes, but a few of them, um, with the vast majority covering like all, what's already happened just from other points of view. I get that. I do get that. And in a large part, I agree with that. But what it, it didn't bother me in particular as much as the sheer lack of Rand Althor in this book did and i guess it's kind of the same thing it's involved i suppose but the audacity on jordan's part of leaving his main character the backbone of his entire series with so little page time in a volume this size i mean it it really bothered me uh, as a first time reader what about you guys i mean i see what you mean and to an extent i feel the same way but at the same time, I felt like if he added more Rand scenes, he would have just been padding it out. Unless... I almost would have preferred that, though. Like, just like a complete... He's almost AWOL for this whole book. Yeah, but we don't need more padding in a book that has so much padding anyway. <laughs> like, if, if, there had been, if there had been more Rand, he would have had yeah. to go to the meeting with not too on and, and and that would have had to develop and maybe the manor house fight would have had to be in this book too and then that because what else yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what what could he have added that was relevant at all rand convalescing could just be me being a picky reader i suppose but i feel like he could have thought something to do with rand there's something extra something small i don't know well so it just rob remind me did you have the same issue with the dragon reborn with, no, I didn't. No, not at all. Because we there's still very little Rand in the Dragon, Dragon Reborn than we did in this one. <laughs> Rand only gets Sorry. like like maybe four or five points mm. of view in the Dragon Reborn. It is right, ironic, but I mean, certainly. the ending of the Dragon Reborn. And I talked about this in that one, uh, in that episode at length when we were talking with Craig Hanks. Uh, I mean, the ending of the Dragon Reborn itself made it all worth it. Like the mystery surrounding what Rand is doing and what he's getting himself up to, and and the revelation that he's going after. The Stone of Tear, and he's going after Kalindor, and the fact, and, and just how much Rand we got at the end, and how explosive that climax was. 
made it all worth it. I mean, what was the Rand climax in this book? He just sends Loghain and, and Bashir right. and Loyal to say, hey, let's arrange a meeting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's a valid point. And, and I agree with you there. I, I, each time I read this book, I'm frustrated by how little narrative progression there is with Rand. And, uh, and, and despite that, though, like the Rand, Rand-centric scenes in this book, even if it's not always from his point of view, are among my favorite chapters in the book. Mm. So, you know, it, it's the natural thing is to want more, to, to feel unsatisfied with that. Yeah, and, you know, contributing to these feelings of frustration is where precisely, like, like I just said, where <laughs> precisely Jordan chose to leave Rand for this book. I mean, he does say, he does give that line at the end that preparations need to begin for the last battle. And that, for me, was that moment, like, <gasps> you're not going to end it right there. <laughs> are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. If I had, like, a final philosophy on this book, it, and it, it's easy in hindsight to say this, but splitting Knife of Dreams and Crossroads of Twilight into two books is a mistake for these reasons. Hmm. I know that as they stand, they would be too big for one book, but just... Then this is where an editor is so important. Just cut out or shorten the things that don't need to be there. Like the dough brain stuff was cool. But it didn't <coughs> Millennia, need to be that Neon, <coughs> Aramilla. Oh my God. And you Aramilla. Some Ugh. of the earlier parts of the book to Winter's Heart as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And made it easier yeah. to, right. to split up. But, but that's really the source of all of these problems. Like, there's not enough Rand. Well, there's plenty of Rand in Knife of Dreams. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. We and, can... and all of these problems with the lack of progression in storylines, yeah. all of those storylines are wrapped up in Knife of Dreams. Exactly. Yeah. The, the beginning of the story, I don't see why they needed to be that long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, yep. so the book as it stands has probably the most flaws of any Wheel of Time book, which is probably why it takes my spot on least favorite. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sure. sure. It's not a bad book. I'm not... Uh, yeah, I mean, like it's a, it's a middle of the road book. Yeah, I, I have. It's hard to have any strong feelings about it, one way or the other. Yeah. Um. So, does that bring us to the end of our characters, or does anybody else else have points about uh, character discussion? Mm, nope, not I. No, I'm good. Okay. Uh, Rob, do we have any listener questions this week? Uh, so I made the post, and we didn't get so many questions as we just got uh, just opinions. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm searching it right now. I'm here on the page. I've included in my notes. Um, right here, where are we go. I think we did have one question, a direct question. Okay. Um, but we've also kind of been, you know, addressing that uh, over the course of this whole podcast. This is from a patron, Armando Urivez. What's up, Armando? Thanks for uh, asking another question for today. He asks, "Why do you guys think this book falls flat for most of the fandom when this is directly following the cleansing of Sidine?" Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we <laughs> we we've beaten that horse yeah. for him. I think, yeah. I think we just yeah. spent about eighty-five minutes talking about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the rest of the comments, we got one from Rashid, who's a patron, I believe. Um, we got one from Christian Hayden, from Jason Hawkins, but most of these are just comments on on why they think the book was pretty slow. Okay. Uh, Christian says, "My issue was I wanted the story to move forward." But it's just all parallel story that happened at the exact time of the cleansing. Very frustrating when we had to wait years for the next book and, and things oh, didn't yeah. Yeah. much move. <laughs> right? So, um, uh, Jason Hawkins before, said before, that the, the parent. Sorry. Before we move on to the next one, I, I want to ask Gene 
about the because you've been reading the wheel of time longer than any of us Mm. what what was that weight like for you like how how difficult was it did did you find you know with like Pat the Dagger's Winter's Heart you know like that because I came in only after Winter's Heart had been published well I read The Eye of the World first and so I, I go way back with it yeah and I just kind of picked them out as they came out. I was anxious about it. I used to berate myself for spending hardcover money for books that I knew would be in paperback. Yeah. Um, but I somehow managed to justify it to myself. Um, um, I don't recall what rationale I used, but... Uh, <laughs> it's the wheel of time, it's fine. <laughs> it, it was Not needed. Like, I, I could be doing worse things, I probably said to myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, you know, taking my family, taking the food out of my children's mouths, <laughs> spending it on cheap wine and, and, and dicing. Um, but I, yeah, I was always anxious to, uh, to see the next one. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, went, I pretty much got them as they came out. And uh, when's the next one coming out? And it was... I don't remember being, um, I think maybe in an internet chat room, you know, back in the days. Really? Um, yeah, people were talking about it. And, uh, but, you know, I have a really busy life, so I, you know, I, I don't, I wasn't hanging by a thread, but I was always anxious and always eager and always um, happy to read the next installment. So like Dickens, you know. Yeah. It, it, must, it must have been a great deal, like uh, Charles Dickens in the 1850s. With the serialized stories. And, you know. Exactly, yes. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just always find it fascinating talking with people who started reading the series so early on. Yeah. Or, you know, how much of a different experience that must have been where I only had to wait for like four books, five books. And right. <laughs> Did you read the first book roughly around the time that it came out? It was in paperback, so it would have been probably a couple of years back. My recollection is, is that it would have been maybe 90, 1994 or something. Okay. When did it come out? I so, I World was January 90. Yeah, so it might have been earlier than that. It might have been, it might have been 1993 or something like that. Yeah. Almost as long as I've been alive, in other words. Well, that's right. You, yeah. would, you would have been quite young, <laughs> and... Um, I know that I read the uh, Stephen Donaldson first trilogy mm-hmm. first, because that was recommended to me. Um, and then when I read Eye of the World, I said, gee, this is just like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But it was different enough from Lord of the Rings to pique the curiosity to say, yes, that's a nice touch. Uh, you know, uh, the, he did the Minds of Moria better than Tolkien uh, yeah. in, in his own way. Um, but at the end, I thought, well, gee, he killed uh, Shaitan and everything's okay now. And I said, wait a minute. He's not dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, Fair enough. <clears throat> to this day, I vividly remember, uh, so Matt, your, another one of your children, uh, had read at least up through the first five or six Wheel of Time books. And he was talking to me when he found out I was reading The Eye of the World. And I finished it, and I remember talking to him and saying... How are there eight more books? He already killed the dark one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
as oh, as Balzaman would have said, fool, <laughs> slug under <laughs> a rock, summer child. <laughs> you are a beast. You know, to offer counterpoint to that, like from uh, from my oh, point. God, I love that character. <laughs> yeah. oh. so, I have to say, I also read the Eye of the World, and I thought it. Yeah, okay, it does borrow a lot from Tolkien, mm-hmm. but I especially love the idea of the Forsaken. Hmm. Because uh, yeah. the you know the Nazgul we never get to know, right? We meet the Witch King, but we never find out about his character, who he was, what he was like. Right. But the idea of the Forsaken, who are very unique and very different from each other, hmm. was something that really hooked me right away on the series. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the like the release of this book in particular, Crossroads of Twilight, Book Ten. It fell into like a very special place in my life in that I had just discovered the series like a year or two previously. And at the time I was like around age 13 or 14 when, when this one was released, I was drawing close to the end of what had been published at the time. Like all of my remaining soft covers, um, those are, aren't, you know, are paperback, I should say. Those are, well, that aren't too mutilated to tell anymore at this point. They show <laughs> Crossroads of Twilight being the last book released. And so, like, really, after reading this one, this was the first time I had to put down the Wheel of Time and wait for the next one. This was the first one that I had to put down and wait for the next one. And, and as a 13 to 14-year-old kid salivating over these Rand and his ominous destiny scenes coming to a head, you know, leaving off with this one for the first time and realizing that it's going to be months or even perhaps years to get any more of the story, it really left me frustrated as a reader and I can see why the book has the reputation it does. And I can imagine that's also what so many others have found off putting about it. But now that we have a single cohesive finished series, rest in peace, Mr. Jordan. Thank you, Harriet Sanderson, everyone involved in that process. I'm not viewing this book so much as a slog as I once was. And I'm now seeing it as more just like a, an, it just holds this eccentric place in the series. If you want to put it that way, like I found a lot more to discuss running down my notes than I was expecting to for this week. And for that reason alone, I'm two thumbs up. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, uh, said. so, so I think if we have any kind of wrap up thoughts on the book in general, now's the time mm-hmm. before we move into some kind of theory talking. Cause I know Anna wants to dive into a little bit of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd love to come back if you guys would, uh, would oh. have me. Um, and, uh, this has been great fun. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Like, I, 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 I yeah, really I, want to I, thank you, uh, Gene and, and Anna, for both, like both of you, for joining us today. Like Drew, Drew, you guys, you probably know this by now, but Drew's been a really big positive influence on my life over these past ten years, and I'm really excited that I'm finally able to start meeting more of the extended family of the McCaffreys, if you will. <laughs> there were a lot so more. I, I, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I endlessly appreciate. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the discussion that you guys have, have had well, today. And I kind of feel like I'm part of the elite sitting here getting to talk with you guys. And I just, I only hope I get to meet more of you. No, I appreciate your insights. I like to be, we always have a big party in the summer and you're absolutely invited. And we usually have a big wild party. So uh, please I will hit up that party uh, feel free and ask around about it. And if with your permission, I will take my leave and join you at another time for more discussions. Absolutely. So much. Yes, really thank you very much. And, uh, 
Thanks to all of you. Yeah. And may I say just before you go that it's appropriate to have someone as prolific as you talking about an author as prolific as Robert Jordan. <laughs> <Yeah. Jordan. laughs> ah, there we go. So, so uh, next time on Inking Out Loud when we're covering Stephen R. Donaldson featuring Gene McCaffrey. Oh, that would be great. That would be, thanks a lot. Nice to meet you, Rob. Nice to meet you too, Gene. Thank you very much. Yeah, Anna, do you want to kick us off on our theory discussion here? Well, this is getting a little bit ahead okay. of things. Okay, blast us off then. All right, so Pat and I have been working on our theory Say Pat of who Nakomi is. Yes. Oh, yes. All the way in Towers okay. of Midnight. Um, so, yeah, it, should I start out by going through some of the main ideas that people have suggested. Yes. Heck yeah. Okay. If we can stomach them, yes, but but do <laughs> but do go ahead. There are yeah, and there are quite a few. And yeah, in there true are. Brown Aja style, I have a lot of notes on all of these things. So Oh yeah, hold first, on, we're supposed to do that with female guests, aren't we? What Aja were you would you be? Brown Aja. Anna? Oh, there's oh, yeah. like brown 100%. Aja. Okay, I heard you mention brown there, so I wanted to make sure I heard correctly. No question. Sorry, go that. ahead. Oh, uh, so, the first and most popular theory is that she is the creator. Damn. And so, I mean, there's... The evidence for this would be that she knows where Avienda is going to be, where Avienda doesn't herself know exactly where she's going. She's just going for a while to run in the Threefold Land for a while. No specific plan. So it would be hard for anyone else to find her, but the creator, that cool. wouldn't apply, obviously. Um, Avienda thinks that the woman cannot channel, but channeling appears to have been done with the fire. Glowing brighter, more coals added, and the fact that she appears and disappears without mm -hmm. specific evidence of a gateway. Avienda can't feel anything. Mm -hmm. And that also could be evidence for the creator. Mm -hmm. The reason I have for thinking that is unlikely is that because the books reiterate over and over that the creator does not take part. The creator does not interfere directly with events as they unfold. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, explicitly stated in Memory of Light. So I think it very unlikely that they would suddenly walk that back just for this one instance well that also begs the question though like what, what would you consider taking a direct hand i mean what did nekomi really do besides talk about the end of her minute well the creator would have taken a human form sure and come and directly influenced avienda to change the course that she was going to follow in going to ruidian and then change the future course of the Aiel as a people. So that's, that's okay. taking it, yeah, a pretty direct part. So, so I, I do want to point out here, we have what appear to be two moments in the series when the creator speaks to Rand. Mm. Right. In Eye of the World and in A Memory of Light. Especially in the Eye of the World, if that is the creator, which by all accounts it is, um, the creator is taking part, even though the wine literally says, I will take no part. The creator then goes on to say, it is not here. 
and tells Rand to leave the eye. Mm. And that, to me, aligns with Nekomi's M.O. in Towers of Midnight and A Memory of Light, where she subtly guides people. She doesn't take a direct hand in events. It's, uh, to, to go into the Cosmere a little bit, it's like what Hoyd does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I still I still view what Nakomi is doing as too direct for the creator. Okay. And, and we also have to remember that the creator was, in the two instances that you mentioned, he was talking to Rand uh-huh. as the dragon, um, because Rand is so significant. I, I think from the point of view of the creator and the pattern as a whole, what happens to the Aiel is irrelevant. The, because the, the pattern doesn't care as much about the Aiel as we, the readers, do. The pattern cares nothing, and and the creator is very much portrayed as this uh, as the master clock clockmaker sure. who yeah. winds the thing up and lets it go. I mean, uh, yeah, so that that might yeah, leave a and little why, room why for. Why interfere with the path of the Aiel now, as opposed to say when they abandoned the way of the leaf? You know, so why, why would it be more significant? One, one could now? argue that that um, encounter with Avienda wasn't really about the Aiel, it was about the dragon's peace. And it was about Rand's ability to uh, bring the disparate forces of the light together ahead of the last battle. Possibly, but she does spend a lot more time talking with Avienda about what the Aiel's future is going mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. and why they are there. Certainly. Yeah. I, I, I at the risk mean. of getting too meta here, which I'm going to, I'm just going to risk it anyway, because why not? YOLO. This um, is the time to get meta. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Like, since we're talking about, like, the, the, the thought of the creator denying that he's going to take any sort of hand in events and then perhaps looking like he is taking some sort of hand, direct hand in events, um, a big theme throughout the entirety of the Wheel of Time has been the unreliable narrator. And it makes you wonder if the creator himself may or may not be an unreliable narrator. Uh, could you could you expand on that? A yeah, little I'm, more? I'm interested in in that thought process. Yeah, because like the, the, the okay, the creator himself says, assuming that that's him talking in a memory <laughs> of light, and that's him talking in the eye of the world. I will take no part. But you just said, Drew, that a lot of what the creator, you know does in these scenes uh, a number in, in the eye of the world. He says, it is not here. And that, you know, that is kind of taking a direct hand. That's influencing Rand in a very vulnerable time. Like, it could, like, I don't know. I think the, the creator could just simply be lying to himself or lying to everybody, saying, I'm not going to take part, no, but no, I, on the down low, on the down low, I'm going to... I've, I've always viewed that, like, the, the it's not here thing as the creator saying, this is my one and only... Like, this is my closing thing that I will do for you. This is the first and the last time well, clearly that I'm going to give you... Well, clearly it's not, because he again talks to Rand in a memory of light but and says it is now. Like, yeah. like now, th- this, it's, this is your moment. Do it. Yeah, like, but that's not really helping Rand at all. Like, he, he helps... Sure. If, if that is the creator, then he helps Rand once. In a very minor sort of way. He just... He doesn't even do anything. He just says it's not here. Um, mm-hmm. Like that seems. But Nicole be... doesn't do anything either. Right, but the creators also. She influences a lot. Like there's a. I, I see there's a there's a big difference between 
the creator saying it's not here and all the way over the to subtly uh, influencing Avienda's thought process. Yeah, and his statements to Rand are really to get Rand eventually to the last battle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which seems like maybe that would be more of... If he was going to interfere ever, that would be something... Yeah. Because that's what needs to happen. Because the pattern itself is the thing that's at stake. And while the creator might not want to influence the world directly, he might have one or two things to say about his whole grand design going up in flames. Okay, okay. So we interrogated (laughs) one idea. What is the next popular thing? Um, Another (laughs) theory I've seen is that because she can't sense channeling uh, someone making a gateway, for instance, Mm -hmm. that it was one of the Forsaken. And Mm -hmm. I don't buy that idea for a lot of reasons, Mm -hmm. one of which, why would the Forsaken want to help Avienda or the Aiel? How does yeah, any, they don't care? Do any um, of the Forsaken even know who Avienda is in, in specific uh, terms? I can I can pretty much somewhat. uh well I guess I can't pretty much debunk it because we don't see a gateway, but true power traveling we do see a couple of times in the series, and it is different than one power traveling. Right. It's like like ripping a hole and warping the pattern. Um it's like like tearing stuff, um, yeah, we so see it in the people... Eye of the World prologue, and yeah, uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine a scenario in which Nikomi could have been one of the Forsaken. Yeah, and there's no reason they would know that she was there. There's, a, yeah. there's just not really a lot to that's support a, that theory. I don't think that's um, even sillier than the creator theory. Um, well, there's also the well, theory much sillier. Yeah. that um, she is some Aiel hero of the Horn. Yes. That is ah, that, that has yeah. been proposed, <clears throat> um, but it's difficult to understand. Um, you know, again, why would she not? You know, how is she out in the Aiel waste? It, okay, why if, would you could maybe convince me that Avienda had fallen asleep and that she was in the world of dreams? Hence, mm-hmm. all well, all of the things: the fire, the the lack of that one is, power. That is common. Yeah, I've but, seen yeah, that, that that's before. Another Theory that comes up as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, that that's good as far as it goes. Um, but do we have? Is there a hint anywhere else in the series that such a person that such a person exists? Well, so the um, there's like another aspect of that that could support it possibly is that Nakomi also shows up at Shale Ghoul in a yeah, memory of life. Yeah, in the Pit of Doom. Right. This is after the horn has been blown, so she could. Hypothetically, yeah. Conceivably, do yeah. that. And that makes much more as, sense than one of the Forsaken, because the Forsaken as, are all accounted for. I don't, as long I don't, as the I don't with hate the that theory. Place in yeah. I can't immediately see a way to de- uh, debunk that theory or dismiss mm-hmm. it. Um, I, I still hold to Anna and my theory, but... Um, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I would say about that is that I don't understand the part about how they uh, they cook the Avienda's mother's recipe and then they yes. eat that and um, see that seems to be to sort of ground it in the physical reality mm. in a sense so I that's the only that. thing I'd, I'd bring up that yes. might not indicate that 
Um, I, I think I know where we're going, where your theory eventually is. Yeah. is uh, well, and that brings up another interesting bit, too, that Avienda is not an inexperienced either channeler or uh, person in the world of dreams. Could mm-hmm. it, is it plausible that this could happen to her without it becoming conscious? With, without it becoming conscious? I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, the, you could vacillate about that until the wheel turns and again. So I, I'm curious, is there um, in your list there, are either Tigreen or Varen mentioned? Yes, both of them in fact. Okay, alright. And um, Varen I was going to mention last because that's one that's been consistently <laughs> shot down in yeah. interviews. Yes. Um, people did bring that up, you know, what was the timeline, was Varen still alive when the company appeared, but Sanderson did definitely shoot that one down. A number of times specifically so that one's that one's out yes why would people mention Varen in the first place anyway i don't yeah i don't I'm, I'm it, so it, it's a weirdly Varen popular in the theory. i've never understood it myself but yeah like it's fascinating I, like what i guess because she's not accounted him. for yeah but part of the time there um, i think it's just I mean, the fascination with how she was the type of person to flit around and appear where mm. she can impart some knowledge and, you know, tip events in the right way. Uh, right. But but there are so many logistical things that and, don't line up. And other, yeah. other concerns, like the ones we had with the Forsaken. Yeah. Like, why would Varen care one way and or another? how would she right. have known where yeah. Avienda was? Precisely. Yeah, the... That ends up being a problem with a lot of these things, which is, you know, how would anyone know where Avienda was going to be at that specific point in time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Unless, Avienda like, didn't okay, so know. This, and yeah. the tea grain thing, I, I hadn't I've also thought about that. that but... brought up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like she was pretty definitively dead, but... Yeah, she was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I, it, it seemed that way to she, me. She and was, she's dead. She's not a channeler. <laughs> she she oh. only passed out in childbirth and then somehow managed to walk all the way right. back to the Aiel Waste. And then just <laughs> and ran into Avienda. For, for, uh, for 20 years. For reasons. Um, yeah. but, and also something else that I was noticing is that um, the way Jordan writes about the root recipe. Uh-huh. And Avienda thinks about, oh, this is this is my mother's recipe. She used to cook this all the time, and that does sort of have the the feel of a recipe that's passed down in families. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is it yeah. is it time oh, to say it? Okay. Is okay. It, go it, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Nakomi is Avienda. Saw that coming. Yeah, <laughs> and and well, for our regular listeners, hand in hand with my you will recognize the root bit. of this theory in what I have been interrogating over yes. uh, several episodes in the past. That being the theory that Avienda can weave time traveling gateways. Yes, <laughs> that the, the time traveling gateways theory is the linchpin of this theory because it it solves the logistical problem. But if we stop to consider the rest of the scenario, everything falls into place so neatly. The recipe falls into place. How the the time and location could have been known. Why the motivation? Why would anyone care about nudging the history of the Aiel? Um, 
Uh, and it is known that channelers can not only mask their ability, but invert their weaves, so there's no difficulty there with any one power thing that Avienda, in the future state, may or may not have done. Um, and narratively, it would make a nice, neat little arc if Avienda stumbled upon this knowledge and didn't even know what she was doing at the time, and that culminated in her going back to nudge her past self into a better path for the ideal. So that is uh, basically the theory. So, Rob, as far as my head canon takes me, um, where Nekomi is concerned, I always imagined her, and I was going to say this before you even brought it up in particular just a minute ago, Drew, I was just about to say Nekomi's a time traveler. In some way. I mean, she has to be because she knows where Avienda is. She knows what Avienda has to do. Um, I I kind of thought of her as perhaps some woman from a future age who came back to this moment with a new kind of magic system. Like, we don't know how she, she lit that fire or she did some of the odd little things that she did. We don't know how Rand lit the pipe at the very end of A Memory of Light either. I figured there's like a, a burgeoning new magic system if you want to call it that going forward in a future age of the wheel of time something to do with how the world of dreams reacts with the real world but i mean that's as far as as my thoughts took me i mean with nekomi i i i, I was really surprised to hear varin um t grain i've heard before even though i don't it doesn't line up really the math doesn't add up i should say um <clears throat> but as, as soon as you as soon as you brought up the time traveling gateways Drew, it all kind of clicked into place there for me. I went, okay, I see why you have been hammering this point since Fires of Heaven Part 2. That's how you know it's a good theory. Because if, your mind if, subconsciously I, I was immediately so associated, oh, this would make perfect sense. If you just have that one missing link, yes. everything falls into place. But it, I was so flabbergasted and, and confounded, and, and another word that I don't even know, when, I, when you told me about this time traveling gateway idea back in the fires of heaven part two. I was so skeptical of it, but I don't want to admit that I'm not anymore, but I kind of not. And I'm not a skeptical anymore of it. <laughs> like it, the, the, the proper structure oh my of this God, narrative arc, so or the, it's realizing I should say is it's proper places in a sequel in a spinoff after the fact, here's like maybe an Avienda short story well, we know that Jordan was eventually planning on another series called Infinity of Heaven. Right. Right? And do you think time. perhaps Nick Comey could have been involved and that be a character in that, si in that yep. series? Uh, Infinity of Heaven was not going to be a Wheel of Time related series. It was going to be its own. No, but it wasn't even taking place in the, in the same universe or on the same planet. We know that for a fact. Yeah, we, it's a totally different thing. Completely different reality? Okay. He just, okay. you know, he's an author and he likes his themes and... <laughs> Yeah, you know, so, so much is is easy to understand. Yeah, but yeah, I I am very fond of this theory, and I think it's the most logical and the most consistent with how the the series as a whole has taken shape. Um, I will admit the hero of the horn theory has shaken my faith, but just slightly, just slightly. I I will credit that explanation over the creator any day. My my initial knee-jerk reaction to that one is just that I'm like she appeared before the horn was blown. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, that's sort of my quibble with that one. 
But I mean, if, if Avienda had like dozed a little bit or there's some merging of the world of dreams with reality in some places of the world, I mean, she could have, that, that could have taken place in Teleron Riyadh for all Avienda knew. Yeah. And like the creator, the heroes of the horn are also bound to not interfere in events. Yeah, according the to the prescripts. The precepts. Yeah, the precepts, yes. But, you know, that's that's a little bit wonky because Brigitte does to an extent. Holy crap, this is going to be a long episode. Yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, but Anna, um, I'm interested to hear what else you have for us as far well, as theories go. Um, I have gone through theory land mm. looking for all the interviews that mention Nakomi. And most of the time, unfortunately, it was a reader find out and open to interpretation. Sanderson said that she was very deep in the notes. They, uh, he does know who she is, but um, he has been specifically told to not reveal that to anyone. Uh, I will add to that. He has added on to that recently and said or teased that perhaps at the 10-year anniversary of A Memory of Light... He will uh, reveal the answer. Oh wow! Well, we'll, we'll oh. wait with bated breath. So, nah, Pat, we got an ominous orchestral hit there. Oh my gosh! It's I, been I seven post. years since memory of night. What's happening to me? Oh, oh one cannot yeah. turn back the wheel, though. Yeah. So uh, there's very little in the interviews that mm -hmm. bears on who she is. Uh, mm -hmm. Mostly, it's just taking down theories of who she could be. And yes. Gurren was one of those ones that was definitely ruled out. Mm -hmm. um, as far as her name goes, uh, yeah. in the old tongue, Nakomi means, who am I? Yes. <laughs> really? Okay, I was going to ask... Thank you for that, Jordan. Oh, uh, what a, what a I was bastard. going to ask why Bear, or Bear was like an ancient name when she tried to say it. And I was like, what the heck? But she's got to be from the future. What does she mean, an ancient name? But then I considered the cyclical nature of the Wheel of Time, and that got me thinking about characters from other ages. Right. I can just see uh, it right now. Avienda doing some menial Aiel task in the tents, post-Tarman Gaiden, and then, like, there's there's an old tongue drop, and someone says, Nekomi, and she's like, oh, what does that mean? And she discovers that it means, who am I? And that sets her on this long... <laughs> arduous trail of trying to uncover and then right. she has the profound right. moment of realization. But it's the perfect ah. name for somebody who needs to conceal their identity. Yes. For obvious True. reasons. Fair, fair. That's a fair point. And provide a necessary hint for someone later down the line to discover that identity. Like, it's not a permanent mask. Obviously, the intent is, is a little different. Because even, you know, a, a knowledge of the old tongue that's far from unheard of in the day and age of the Third Age is common. Mm. So the, the unmasking could be, if it wasn't intentional, it was too easy to uncover the truth. I will mm. also add that Nakomi in literature comes from the Song of Hiawatha, which is where Jordan got the name originally. And it is, uh, it means in the native tongue, either mother or grandmother, which is mm -hmm. suggestive, but not conclusive. Mm -hmm. Suggestive, yeah. yes. Hmm. So. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, boy. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think that was a delightful little theory session that we just had. 
little <laughs> with air quotes. Uh, yeah. I think now is a good time for us to head into the final draft. Yeah. All right. Okay. Rob, kick us off. Um, okay, so my fr- my final draft entry uh, is this remarkable new thing I've just discovered. Great for the organs, lubricating blood vessels, maintaining body temperature. This is called water. Uh, <laughs> the truth of the matter is, everyone, I mean, I do have a confession to make. Uh, over this past week, uh, we've had a bit of an upheaval in the family. You know, as a result, I've been spending a lot of time taking care of younger siblings, procrastinating my reading for this week's episode. Uh, so yesterday, I sat down to read the entirety of Crossroads of Twilight. From page wow. one to page seven hundred four in a day. Um, I started around nine a.m. yesterday, around lunchtime. Uh, I was cooking. I just I was cooking to take a break, and I made the poor decision to crack open a bottle of bourbon and spend the rest of my read with a little bit of a buzz on. Um, as it turns out, even when you're not aiming for drunk, maintaining a buzz for about twelve hours leaves you absolutely destroyed for the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I have been sick all morning and i regret it i'm dizzy i'm nauseous i'm trembling from deep in my soul though uh you know oddly enough i don't have a headache but anyway i've been playing it healthier for today and indulging my organs with fresh filtered tap water from the fridge faucet it's i mean it's good water 10 out of 10 stuff smart smart choice and and for those interested the bourbon that did this to me was was called uh, it's it's spelled b-u-l-l-e-i-t i I want to say it's pronounced bullet bullet yeah okay it's, it's the French part of me wants to say bullet, but I, 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 yeah, I wasn't trying to pronounce that. But I mean, it's good stuff, just strong. So yeah, careful, it, folks. It is very Drink <laughs> responsibly. Uh, Anna, what have you been drinking? I have been drinking an apricot blonde after a lane, let's call it. Oh, nice. Um, huh. It's made by Dry Dock in Denver, Colorado. It is 5.1, so very nice and fruity. Mm-hmm. Perfect for a cold winter's day. Um, I, I did think of the Elaine parallel before you brought that up, but I feel a little <laughs> ill because I have also been drinking of, from that same tainted cup. <laughs> oh. However, however, there's... Um, what else have we been... We're, we're bad. We're bad today because oh, we've, oh, been, uh, we've been slacking and all drinking the same wonderful brews. Um... There's a Belgian Golden Strong that we've been drinking. Um, St. Evaristus version. Vision. 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 I've been having a little too much. It's 11.2%. Yeah, but it does not taste like 11.2. It is remarkably smooth. And I would like to point out, this is... uh, This, what what was it? St. Evaristus Vision? Yes. Yeah. Uh, This is a homebrew... Uh, courtesy of Anna's husband, Rick. Cheers, Rick. Oh! Yeah. Sorry, you say his name is Greg? Rick. Rick. I, how you I think we'd Greg? have someone you, named Rick. Greg in our family. <laughs> it's a very un-McCaffrey well, we're going, we probably uh, could. <laughs> anyway, though, as as Pat said there, we, we have all had a, a pour of this, and it is very tasty. If if So it's a... This is the Belgian Golden Strong Ale. Mm. Um... It has that classic Belgian yeast flavor, that kind of, uh, the, the best word I can use to describe it is round, and I know that isn't very descriptive, but that's just what I associate with this very distinctive Belgian yeast. Uh, there, there's also a really solid like spice profile to it that I find 
mm, delicious. Um, but I did not slack myself this week. Oh, and I brought my own beer. Uh, oh. And this is an American-style barley wine from Anchorage Brewing Company in Alaska. I've had Anchorage on a couple oh, of yeah, times Oh, yeah, you have before. a few times. Uh, this is uh, 11.5%. It is a very robust beer. Uh, very hoppy nose. Not super bitter hoppiness, but kind of like a sharp hoppy flavor with some some strong like toffee notes uh, when you taste it. It's, it's really, really quite good. Uh, but thematically appropriate, it is called Chaos. Hey. I was wondering I if, you, if you dropped the ball on us and stopped with the, the broken the chain of thematic appropriateness, but... No, no. I'm gratified. Hey, we've got the Elaine beer. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we have been quite spoiled here today on the beer end. Uh... Yes. Between Rick's offering and uh, and the apricot dry dock blonde, which I did not drink today, but I've had before, and it is very tasty. We are most appreciative. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, on that note, I think that takes us into our outro. This has been episode 55 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Mm-hmm. Next up, we are going to be covering the first book of The Witcher. Uh, we are we are hopping on that that hype train. Neither Rob nor I uh, have read this book before. As I understand it, it's a collection of short stories, but I, I don't yep. uh, entirely That's what I've read. you know understand everything. So this is going to be an adventure. Um, if you uh, if you want to support the podcast, if you want to get some bonus content, including monthly short fiction from Rob. And me, if you want to get early access to our episodes or our uh, uh, short story or general fantasy chatter episodes, check us out on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, as always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Over here. Our very special guest, Anna McCaffrey-Wheeler. And our sound engineer, Patrick McCaffrey. It's been a pleasure as always. And a shout out to Gene once again if he's listening to this later. Thanks again, Gene, for coming on. (laughs) So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.